every fall we hold a conference which uh, honors him. He was a student at the Technical University in Lvov. In 1939 he fought against the Germans, the Ukrainian nationalists and Soviets. He was captured by the Soviets, escaped. He was interned in Romania, he escaped through Serbia to Greece. He stowed away on a ship, made it to France, enrolled at Kotkidao, cadet school there. Then he fought in Narvik, then he fought in France, then he and his friends stole a yacht from Marseille to sail for Gibraltar. Too bad none of them knew how to sail. They bumped into a storm, so they were shipwrecked. And Zdiho uh, ended up at Miranda del Elbro, where Franco's forces accused him of communism. He was a little bit peeved, as you can imagine. Uh, he disliked both brown and red. <laughs> Afterwards, he made it out of Miranda uh, through Portugal, got on a ship, was transported to England, where he was allowed to join the 314 Royal Air Force's Polish Wing Silesian Land Squadron and his patron was Prince Joseph Poniatowski. was also a commanding officer of a couple members of my family back in the early 19th century. Afterwards, he finished school in England. Uh, the US asked him to come out to work on several projects. He was an optical engineer, so he worked on uh, uh, the nuclear trigger for H-bomb. And his, oh, he was a master of America's first uh, spy satellites. It wasn't just the Nazis. <laughs> the rumor is greatly exaggerated. Uh, his last job, and paid job, was chief engineer Lawrence Livermore Lab. He was in charge of SDI, mirrors. And I quote, the mirrors work, I don't know about the lasers. Anyway. He's also, he also was a philanthropist and helped the institute quite a bit. So we remember him, aside from having a person who shaped me to an extent the way I am. But today, this was just a whistle-stop tour of my foster father, who also founded banks in California and stuff. But um, uh, today, I'd like to commemorate and remember another fellow engineer, albeit extremely famous, Thaddeus Kosciuszko. General Ed Romney told me when he was an upperclassman at West Point, he would corner a plebe at the first year and ask, point out at the monument of General Kosciuszko at West Point and say, what's his name? And of course, the kid would say, go. <laughs> And General Romney, who was then a, a cadet, would say, give me a hundred <laughs> until you learn how to pronounce General Thaddeus Kosciuszko, <laughs> which is a tongue twister. <coughs> uh, the Kosciuszko had an estate uh, in uh, central Commonwealth, right outside of Minsk, close to my family. Uh, that particular branch is called Iwaszkiewicz Rudoszański. So the Kościuszkos were just across the road, so to speak, 
Oh, don't love the Dzerzhinskis were a little bit <laughs> further <laughs> west. <laughs> and their manor house has been rebuilt by Lukashenko in tribute um, to the great Felix, whom they considered a psychopath. But anyway, um, Kościuszko came from uh, middle nobility. He was uh, well-educated, including abroad. He was an engineer, an artillery man, but also a sapper, mathematician. He loved the old commonwealth and he idealized it, but he noticed that the old arrangements that had performed miracles and feats in service of liberty for 300 years were no longer ap applicable in the 18th century. So Kościuszko began imbibing other sources, including the Enlightenment that led him to be rather neutral on religion, which, as every mystic will tell you, is indispensable when a nation is in peril, because you can't be realistic if the forces aligned against you are so powerful, you stop thinking, you just feel. And that's the great romantic spirit that allows the downtrodden to survive the worst of the worst. Kościuszko studied in France. He returned to Poland where he had studied earlier at the Knights Academy, Akademia Rycerska. He was very much interested in military reform, but he thought other reforms ought to be undertaken as well. In the spirit of the Enlightenment, tempered by uh, the Polish tradition, or the Republican Commonwealth tradition. I hate to use the word Polish because people immediately think 20 or 21st century, whereas my family is Ruthenian by origin. So they think people from Poznan, or Warsaw, way out in the West. And we're from Mstislaw. Still called ourselves Polish. Here's an anecdote. I met a white Russian emigre, I forgot it, I think it was with the Shuiskis in, uh, in San Francisco, who said to me, you know, I was born uh, by the Polish border. I said, really? Where? And he said, well, a little bit to the east of Smolensk. He was an old Russian aristocrat, and he said, Poland, he meant the old Commonwealth, for he was not a nationalist, if you know what I mean, he was a dinosaur. <laughs> but we understood each other very well. Well, that was also Kościuszko's milieu. Do not ever mistake him for a latter-day multiculturalist. He just got used to everybody because everybody lived there. Tatars, Jews, Scots, Italians, everyone. If a Jew converted to Catholicism in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, he was automatically ennobled. For many, that was the best way out from the tyranny of the rabbis. Because the Scots, Jews, Tatars, and Armenians enjoyed autonomy in the Commonwealth. This is the tradition that Kościuszko embraced, not some multi-culti crazy uh, stuff they practice in Berlin today, to propitiate from the time when they practiced a total opposite. In any event, when Kościuszko was in Paris following another disastrous war in the defense of the Constitution of May the Third, that should have never been implemented because you don't reform, you stand still where you have a knife on your throat. You wait till the knife goes somewhere else 
and the knife would have gone to France to crush the revolutionists that Poland volunteered to be crushed instead of France. Following that disaster of a war, where Kosciuszko fought with utmost distinction, he moved to Paris, or escaped to Paris. He heard, uh, no, I'm sorry, the chronology right. Before then, uh, after the partition, he traveled to Paris and he heard that America was in trouble. So he volunteered to come. He really had very um, slim letters of recommendation. And when he arrived uh, in the United States, he asked for a commission. He said, really, this isn't about money for me. It's about the principle, and the principle is freedom. He mirror image, sort of like his reactionary uh, friend, Count Casimir Pulaski, the founder of U.S. Cavalry. Pulaski came because he thought America was Poland. Kosciuszko did too, but from an enlightened point of view. The mirror image, they wanted to make this all very familiar for themselves. And whereas Pulaski, who saved George Washington and Brandywine, by charging the British line, which everybody thought was crazy, so that the Brits and the line broke, and George Washington could escape, well, Kosciuszko volunteered to do engineering work. Very soon, his prowess was recognized. He found West Point and fortified it. Hence, his monument there. He is the founder of West Point. He also was the architect of America's victory at Saratoga, and this isn't Polish propaganda, this is General Horatio Gates who said the victory is Polish, the engineer set everything up, and the British just walked into the trap and we mowed them down. Anyway, Kosciuszko thought he picked up some valid pointers here in the United States, and not only those pointers influenced the world's second written constitution, which was Polish. That's the one that triggered the war that ended in disaster. But Kosciuszko thought he had a, a blueprint for how to mobilize not just the nobility, but everyone. Everyone, including the peasants. And remember, peasantry had no mentality beyond the village, usually. In the Commonwealth, the only exception, there were, there were a few exceptions. One was the Kashubi, who recognized themselves as a sort of a group, the Kurpie, who were in the north, and they were the best sharpshooters sharp ever, first with longbows, sort of, sort of like Welsh longbowmen, <coughs> uh, and finally, the royal peasants. Why? Because they served in royal infantry, uniquely. There were no property qualifications in the Commonwealth to be a nobleman. It was service. If you were ready to die, you were a citizen. You could vote. So, as early as 15th, 16th century, one million people participated in elections, in direct democracy, republican democracy, nonetheless. But they did. They were all noble even if they had 40 acres and a mule, or less. So Kosciuszko attempted to modernize the system and make a great, uh, construct a great army of farmers. 
But if you're a farmer, you're no longer a peasant. Peasants had only local consciousness. Farmers, like the royal farmers, who fought, were willing to risk their lives for the nation, which in the Polish context is more important than the state, because that's a living organism, so to speak. And the state is just an artificial thing the Poles tended not to like. Not only because most of the time, in modern times, the state was foreign, but because in the old days, the less there was a state, the more freedom existed. Open to anybody who was willing to risk his life. Kościuszko wanted to formalize it. As a man of reason, as a man of enlightenment, he tried to make this whole setup similar to what he had witnessed in America that entailed ending serfdom. And unlike very many Harveys of the world, he practiced what he preached. For example, he gave up his inheritance to his sister on the condition that she freed the peasants. She couldn't keep it if she didn't want to free the peasants. In the United States, when the, when the Congress awarded him a swath of land and money, he put it all in a trust with his friend Thomas Jefferson in Monticello. And the purpose of the trust was the manumission of slaves. Kościuszko understood, not only through his American experience, but in particular by his Polish experience, <coughs> he understood that it's not enough to give freedom. You also have to give a fishing rod. So the money was earmarked for education of those who are freed. So they could make something of themselves. Unfortunately, since Thomas Jefferson was um, chronically in debt, the money was <coughs> appropriated elsewhere in violation of that trust. I wonder whom we can sue. Anyway, uh, to say that he was an exceptional man would be banal because we only talk about exceptional men and women. Uh, as Eric von Kuhn-Ledin, one of my dinosaurs, used to say, that people are oblivious to yesterday, indifferent to tomorrow. They live only for today. And the world is divided into ladies and gentlemen and the peasantry. And so it was in modernity, and so it is in postmodernity. The definition now of ladies and gentlemen is not the gota. The definition now is what you are going to do because God blessed you more than others. So you have an obligation to serve. And that, by the way, comes from the 15th century ethos of Polish chivalry that Kościuszko uh, subscribed to. He was offered by the Tsar and by Napoleon, Alexander by Napoleon, the stars. And he said, by the way, no. He knew none of them was about freedom. So he refused to compromise and moved to Switzerland, where he awaited his moment. Let us um, reminisce about this 
exceptional individual uh, for 30 seconds in silence. Thank you. All right, don't worry. Life is just killing time before death. We may just as well have as much fun. And I know very few people have more fun than David Satter. He spoke me only one time in my life. Because I thought he disappeared in Russia. I didn't know he was in Kiev. Before I found out, I was pretty uh, peeved. So I wrote an article, Get David. <laughs> it was an advice to Putin to appoint David as the head of a commission to investigate mysterious explosions which killed Russians in Russia. He, unfortunately, the Czechists did not take my advice. But uh, David has been, uh, outside of Russia, has been the most outspoken person from the very beginning, exposing post-communism. And this is what I always like to do, I do it at all conferences, because it explains. And no one is better at it than David. David has a line that the individual does not matter, because there is only one building called the Kremlin, and one person in it. And that's what matters. And that person is called a state. Hence, utter disregard for human life in Russia and hence ultra-centralization. And we were hoping, or some of us, not so much me, I went to Russia with, well, white Russians, with the Sharonietyevs, for the first time in 1991. It was funny. Yes. Uh, I don't know how many times they greeted me, Russia delicious. <laughs> I, I thought it was a hood, but uh, anyway. This is what happened. Communism, Transformation, not democracy, not freedom, post-communism. Same thing, it's just changed shape, that's it. And this process has baffled the experts in the West, except for them. So I love them to pieces. Thank you very much.